want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we can let the children be dismissed for junior church. Thank you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to welcome you to the chapel family. Uh, we are currently engaged in a discussion on the topic of encouraging confidence in God's provision in the context of spiritual warfare. Okay, encouraging confidence in God's provision in the context of spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I love that we sang, shout to the Lord this morning. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, our hand-to-hand combat, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to be found standing. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I'll repeat again, so that you can stand. The nature of Christian living is something we touched on last Sunday morning. It is a struggle, it is a battle against spiritual forces that encounter us in our daily experience. It is a battle that we often give conscious voice to, but actively practice disbelief. We know it's there, but we don't act as if and live as if it is there. Uh, It's kind of in my mind like the um, engine light on the dashboard of my car. It's on but I absolutely do nothing about it, okay? Until inspection time that arose, okay, I need to get that thing shut off. It goes on so frequently in my cars that I have, I, I'm conscious of it, but I act as if it's not on, okay? I think for many of us, this text turns on the engine light, but it's the red one, okay? Not the orange one that we can ignore. It's the red one. And it says to us that if you don't do something to fix the problems and situations and struggles in your life, if you don't stand against them, they will, in fact, bring deep devastation and destruction into your life. We give conscious voice to the fact that there is spiritual warfare, but we actively live in disbelief that it really matters or affects us. And I think that is a hazard that the church must address. We must take it seriously, and we must prepare for it. This text exposes for us Paul's worldview, his, if you will, cosmic perspective. Verse 12, he says this. Our struggle, our pitted battle is not against flesh and blood. And then he gives an array, uh, a description, if you will, of the opposition that the evil one unleashes against the church. The Christian life is, in fact, an opposed life. It's not an easy life. It's a life in which you will experience persistent and consistent temptations and opposition. Ephesians 3 and verse 13 tells us the effect of this opposition. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3, if you will. Just maybe turn back one page. 
Okay, Paul says this to the church, to those that he's writing to. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. Okay, don't be discouraged by the persistence of the attack against yourself. And particularly in Paul's case, he's saying, don't be discouraged by what I'm going through. It is for your glory. God is working all things together for good, even the struggles and the opposition that you and I face. He is growing us and He is strengthening us through those things. Christian living, I think in this setting, takes place on a battleground between darkness and light, good and evil. Okay, and so we feel in our lives this constant tension or pulling or drawing or attracting in the wrong direction. And we feel the Spirit of God wooing and pleading and entreating with us to pull us in the right direction. Okay, that's the... That's the nature of the struggle. That tension very seldom subsides. If you look at chapter 5, verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians, notice what it says. Be careful then how you live. That is, there is a caution sign. Not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity. That is, of every daily experience, because the days are evil. Okay, make the most for the cause of righteousness because the days in which you live are in direct opposition to what God is seeking to do. Okay, so Paul's cosmic worldview begins to emerge. Okay, we are in the midst of a conflict. And you don't, we as Christians, don't need to do stupid things to find out that we're in the midst of a conflict. I was amazed a few weeks ago by the furor over the pastor in Florida that wanted to burn the Koran. Okay, in my estimation... I don't see the benefit of it. I think it is foolishly poking our eye in the, or finger in the face of trouble. Okay, and asking for battles that... Look, if you think you need to go do something like that to engage in spiritual warfare, you are blind to the daily realities of life. The battle is raging around us. Okay, now, do we need to be people of truth and speak the truth about things and clearly define things for what they are? I believe the answer unequivocally is yes. But we do not need to go and encourage conflict. Okay, what is Paul saying? It's there on a daily basis. And you need to be prepared for it. But we must prepare, as he says here, very wisely. Be careful, then, how you live. Don't be unwise, but as wise, armed with the wisdom of God, making the most of opportunity, because we know that we live in days in which we are opposed in our effort to advance the cause of God. Now, Verses 10 through 13 that we looked at last, last week basically do this. When you seriously decide to stand for the cause of Christ and for the cause of righteousness, you will sense your need for God's power. And when you turn to Him, He will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ. But only when you realize that you need to turn to Him will you turn and avail yourself of His, of his provision. Okay, that was the theme last week. Now, this week when we come... To verse 13, or 15, he goes into a, or 13, he goes into an extended description of, that begins with a command. Stand firm then. It's the first time that the stand is in the imperative. Okay? Stand firm then with the belt of truth bucket. And what he does, he goes into a list of six pieces of armor or weapons that are encouraged to every believer that will enable them to stand effectively in this conflict and in this contest that is the Christian life. The theme of the text, I think, very clearly emerges 
in verse 11 and verse 13. Put on the full armor of God, verse 13, therefore, because of the battle, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Okay, now let me give you this definition of the word armor. It is protective and offensive equipment for those in conflict. Okay, it is protective and offensive equipment for those engaged in conflict. Now here's what that means. If I don't realize that the Christian experience is a life in the face of opposition, conflict, okay, I will not put on the armor of God. But if I realize the nature of Christian living for what it really is, I will flee to God on a daily basis to fulfill the obligation of these commands. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, or verse, yeah, verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God. Why? Because there are evil days in our lives. Okay, days when we face substantial opposition. Now, here's the question that emerges as you read this text. Paul's going to go into an extended discussion of six pieces of armor. Where does Paul get this illustration? Okay, I want to suggest to you that the illustration comes from two places. One is the Old Testament. If you want to do something that will be utterly fascinating and encouraging to you, go back and read the book of Isaiah with Ephesians 6 in your mind. Okay, and what you will find is that almost everything that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, verses uh, 15 and following, almost every piece of armor that he mentions, okay, is spoken of as the armor of God himself in the book of Isaiah. Okay, that is fascinating to me. It is the armor that God wears, okay, that he speaks of, that now in the New Testament is rolled over to his children as the source of their protection. It is from him and it is empowered by him. So when I yield to this directive to put on the armor of God, I say, you know what? I am going to begin to live a prepared life. I'm going to begin to live with my eyes open because I understand that there is a cosmic reality out there that I am in a struggle if I am seeking to advance the cause of Christ in every area in my life. I will experience and I will face some level or degree of opposition. That armor is spoken of as things that God himself wears in the Old Testament. His provision, his resources that are, that are at our disposal for God-glorifying success. Okay, it is his provision for God-glorifying success in our lives. The other place that I believe Paul gets this analogy is obviously from his situation of imprisonment. Ephesians 3 and verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Ephesians is one of what we call the prison epistles. That is, it is, it is written from a place where Paul's confinement, typically guarded by Roman soldiers. So he's constantly in this environment where he is reminded of how adequately and seriously prepared Roman soldiers were for war. They were, at that time on planet Earth, the most formidable opponent that you could face. They were well-fitted, they were well-armored, and they were quite capable opponents. And Paul was spending time with them on a daily basis. He was able to observe the covering, the armor that they wore. And it's, I believe, from... First, this indication from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, this armor of God, and then this watching of the Roman soldiers that Paul, in his mind, under the inspiration of the Spirit, develops a a picture, a ready-made illustration of what it means to stand for the glory of God in all of our lives. We, and I think this is the crucial application, we prevail 
through His protection and His power. And His provision carries with it His power. Why? It is not only our armor, it is also the armor that is of, sourced in God. And when we take it and put it on, we will sense the empowering of the Spirit of God in our lives. I challenge you this morning. Ask yourself, what resources has God given? Do I know what they are? Do I know the tools and instruments that He has provided for the success of Christians? So that, as He says in this text, Verse, at the end of verse 13, he says, so that after you have done everything, that has lived the full extent of your Christian experience, you will be found standing. Now, folks, most of us tend to accept defeat as normal Christian living. I want to challenge you this morning to take the full assortment of armor and weapons that God has provided so that at the end of each day, you can say, I stood in the power of God for the glory of God. Okay, so let's work our way through this list. What are the resources that God has provided for successful Christian living? Realizing that the list is not exhaustive, it's a representative list of coverings, protections, and weapons that God provides for us as Christians. We need to know this because spiritual battle requires spiritual weapons. 2 Corinthians 10.4 is a verse that comes to mind. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is fleshly, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of opposition and strongholds. Okay, they're not fleshly. I don't go out, the sheer determination will not enable you to live the Christian life effectively. If sheer determination, simply a decision to stand, would have settled the issue, Paul would have said, just stand. But he doesn't. He says, stand in the power of God, the ability he gives, and stand in the armor that God provides for successful Christian living. So let's work our way through the list. First he says this, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Uh, Sometimes, if I'm in a rush in the morning getting ready for my day, I'll find that I rush out of the house and I forget a particular piece of my clothing. Okay? And actually, I guess you wouldn't call it the, the piece of clothing. This, the belt. Whatever you want to call that. Okay? One of the accessories that we put on. Okay? There, there's something about... Now, I, it seems to me that some young people think that it's good to forget your belt. Okay? I don't get that. Okay? Because if my pants were hanging down here, I would feel unprepared and unready for action. Okay? I've, I've never seen a soldier go into battle. Okay, with his pants down around his waist. I've never seen that. Okay? When I forget my belt, you know what I feel? I feel I, there's this sense. You sit in your car and you start and you're like, something's wrong. But you're not sure what it is yet and you start walking. Something's wrong. I don't, I'm not together. Okay? The belt of truth. Okay, for a, for a Roman soldier was something, they would put it on and it was, it was the piece of protective equipment or preparation equipment. They would put it on and draw it tight and then cinch it down. Why? Because attached to that belt were two things. A sword and a small shield for the hand-to-hand combat that followed the big shield combat. Okay, the army would advance in the war with the big shield in front. We'll come to that in a few moments. But tied to the belt were two crucial pieces of equipment. One a sword, a short dagger, and then a long scabbard sword. And the other one was a round shield for the hand-to-hand conflict that Paul is describing. 
Okay, so what is the belt of truth? What, because we're not, we're not looking at something physical that we put on for spiritual battle. What is truth? And I think here's the simple kind of description that emerges here. Ask yourself this question. Am I sincere about my Christian life? Okay, am I sincere? Am I earnest? Am I really, genuinely committed to authentic Christian living? Okay, is, is my commitment to Jesus characterized by being unmixed and unhypocritical? It is a true, conscious decision that I make on a regular basis to be a true man or woman or young person of God. Okay, because... We Christianity is absolutely ineffective in the battle against the evil one. Why? The opposition is too strong and too persistent. And I need to be, if I'm going to stand effectively, I need to be a man, you need to be a woman or a young person of absolute integrity and sincerity. Psalm 51 and verse 6 says this. Of God. You desire truth in the inward parts. And verse 10, he says this God, create in me a clean heart and renew within me a steadfast, sincere spirit. Folks, if you're going to live the Christian life effectively, it is absolutely crucial that you become a true person, an unhypocritical person person. A person who doesn't have a public persona and a private persona. Not a person who lives with a divided heart trying to live two lives. You will be utterly ineffective against the assaults of the evil one if you live a divided life. My challenge to you is to think about something like the story from the Lord of the Rings. The fellowship of the ring was strong when people were committed to the cause. But what you find as you watch that and read that story or watch that movie, you find that people sometimes have an insincere heart, and the insincere heart is revealed by their attraction and compulsion to go after the evil. So for uh, Boromir, he, because of a desire to have the evil, to live a divided life, he, in a sense, begins to shatter the fellowship of the people of God in that story who are seeking to stand against evil, but they must do it together. And that hypocrisy began to have a negative effect. The lack of sincerity and commitment often jeopardized the team. And so it is in our Christian experience. The belt of truth, absolute sincerity, cinched tightly that I am firmly and steadfastly committed to the cause that God has called us to. And remember a story in 2 Timothy where Paul is writing at the end of his life and there is this one-pointed statement of regret that he makes about a certain individual. His name is Demas. And of him he can say this, Demas has forsaken me because he loved the present world. He was divided in his affections. Folks, please understand this. You cannot successfully live the Christian life if you are divided in your affections, if you are insincere. And the, word, the idea of insincerity is to be mixed in terms of your commitments, unsure about what really matters. The belt of truth is our commitment to live 
for the glory of God in all circumstances. So, Paul will say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by them you may fight the good fight, holding on to, armed with faith and a good conscience. Folks, a good conscience, a true conscience before God, is critical for standing in the face of spiritual opposition and warfare. So I ask you this question as application. Are you truthful? Am I truthful? Am I sincere about the Christian life? Because hypocrisy will have devastating effects in our lives and in the lives of those around us. But a truthful and sincere person will be a great blessing and massive encouragement to those around them. Are you true? Is what people see on Sunday morning and when they meet you out on the street, is that who you really are? Put on the belt of truth. He then moves to this picture, the breastplate of righteousness. A portion of armor, typically front and back. Sometimes it was a male coat scale armor that you might read about as you uh, refer to ancient literature about these things. It protected vital organs and gave a degree of confidence. You can imagine when a Roman soldier would take those brass plates and strap them on, it would give a sense of lacking vulnerability. Okay, a sense of confidence, if you will. Righteousness in the Word of God is provided by Christ and pursued by Christians. Okay? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this. It says, It is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. My first need for righteousness is for God to cleanse the depths of my heart from my depravity. That is a gift that God gives to us. Okay, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from works, but a righteousness that comes by faith and is from Jesus Christ. Okay, so that at the first level, righteousness is something that God gives to us. But righteousness is also something that every Christian is encouraged to pursue in his daily life. And so Paul here says, make sure you take on the breastplate of righteousness. It is something that every serious Christian will pursue on a daily basis. Because they know the power of practical holiness in their lives. Folks, here's the bottom line. If I harbor sin in my life towards my wife, if I harbor a bitter spirit, as an illustration, towards my wife, some type of resentment against her, it will, that seed of unrighteousness will infect my life. That's why the Bible says it is a root of bitterness. Okay? If I hide secret sin in my life, it will in some way affect my confidence as a Christian. Why? Because I'm going to feel hypocritical. I'm going to lack confidence. A verse that, is, that I've memorized just a few years ago, Proverbs 28 and verse 13, it says this. And this is about the effect. If I take righteousness and I, I seek to, to find my life becoming more and more pure and more, more and more like Jesus, what will the effect of that righteousness be? Proverbs 28, 13 says this. It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. That is to say this. Hidden sin in your life will always cause you to be looking over your shoulder. 
you will always be conscious of the possibility of being caught. And it will undermine your confidence and your pursuit of the glory of God. It always works that way. So the text encourages us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why? Because the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are what? They are bold as a lion. Here's what you will find. When trouble comes into your life, and that trouble comes into your life at a time when there is hidden sin or unknown sin in your life, you will feel utterly unable to address that struggle in your life. Why? Because the sin will drain you of the power of God. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Okay, what God does when you were first saved, God gave you a confidence in Jesus Christ because His righteousness was given to you as a gift. Then you start living your Christian life and what happens? Over time, I may become less diligent about my pursuit of righteousness and holiness. And sin may begin to creep in and gain a foothold in my life. And it may be sins of attitude. It may be sins of action, sins of lust. Whatever it is, greed, covet, it doesn't matter. It will begin to erode your confidence and your boldness in Jesus. So Paul says to us, make sure you are in a consistent and persistent pursuit of righteousness. Ask yourself this question. Am I living the kind of life that enables me to engage confidently in spiritual warfare? Okay, when I step forward, do I know that I have the power of God with me because I am not stifling and quenching the work of the Spirit by sin in my life? Okay, are you, am I, are we pursuing righteousness? One writer put it this way. He said, the guilt-free heart provides nimble feet. Okay, the guilt-free heart provides nimble feet in spiritual warfare. There's a lightness. There's a joy that comes along with righteousness. And it will encourage you in your battle against the assaults of the evil one. Take the breastplate of righteousness. The third thought is this. Have your feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Notice the way it says it in verse 15. He says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The idea of the gospel of peace is this. It will give you a readiness to stand. Now, what is, what is meant by the kinds of boots that the uh, Roman soldiers would wear in battle? Typically, it was a thick-soled shoe that was studded, we, with, with, typically with nails of some kind. Some type of iron pieces were impregnated in that sandal or in that boot, and it would provide traction, okay? Today, we use the word cleats, okay? Uh, if you're going to go play soccer on a wet field, it would be very wise to put on your feet cleats. Why? Because those cleats will give you a capacity to gain traction against the opponent, okay? That's why they're worn. They give stability. They give readiness. They give some degree of certainty about the steps that one is taking. I was talking with my daughter yesterday, Erica, who runs cross country. She said, the coach gave me cleats and it made me more effective in my running. Okay, in this cross country, wet, up and down kind of track. Okay, I don't know why she wasn't wearing them. Probably because her parents didn't provide them for her, something like that. But here's what happened. She put on cleats and she put it in her best time ever. Team came in first place. 
Okay? She called me and says, wow, I was amazed. Okay? It's readiness. It's traction. It's confidence. Where does it come from? It comes from knowing that my walk with God is right. The gospel is what gives us a sense of peace before our Heavenly Father. It allows us to know that righteousness is present and we have peace with God because we have been justified by faith, Romans 5.1 says. And then Romans 8.1 says this. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. They can go out and live a guilt-free life and effectively advance the cause of Christ in their daily living. Why? Because they have this overwhelming and very joy-producing and confidence-giving peace of God. They know they're not living in opposition to God, but instead God is with them. And when you know that God is with you, that God is for you in your Christian life, it will give you spiritual traction. You know that when you make your moves in your spiritual life, that God is going to be joining with you in that. It is something that emerges from the gospel of peace. Now, when I thought of this, I I thought of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 1. I thought of the peace that Paul faced or that he experienced when he faced the prospect of living or dying. And it's a fascinating passage of Scripture, isn't it? Paul says, if I depart, that is if I die in this conflict and be with Christ, he says, that would be fine. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is what? It's gain. You know what that is? That is an unusual level of peace. You know what peace is? Peace is present. In the, it, you know, true peace is this. It, it is that, that, that sense of tranquility and calm and confidence that a person has in the midst of the storm of life. And it is provided by God himself. You know, the bottom line is all of us face struggles. All of us face trials. All of us face opposition in our Christian experience. We all do. The person who has peace, they have this... My wife is very much this way, okay? She, she's just... Whatever happens, it will work out okay. God is in control. Okay, and there is this... If you watch my, my wife, there is this steadiness in her life that emerges from a peace with God. It's a peace that God gives you that says, look, I have the future under control. Relax. It's what, it's what Jesus communicates to his disciples in John chapter 14 or verse 1. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't experience turbulence. Experience peace. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Okay, what is he encouraging them to do? Rest in my provision. Rest in my power. Everything is going to be fine. And he seeks through circumstances in their lives over and over and over to impress upon them this peace from God that Paul will later say defies explanation. It, you'll know it from the New International. It passes all understanding. This peace of God will keep your hearts in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's a result of knowing that my future destiny is utterly secure in the hands of God. He has all of those bases covered. Therefore, I will not and cannot fear. How do we avail ourselves of this peace, this readiness to stand? I believe it's Philippians 4 and verse 6. It says, do not be anxious for anything or about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, 
Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep, it will protect, it will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Because where is spiritual battle being waged? It's not being waged out there. It's being waged in here and in here. The voices, the tape that continues to play, that the evil, ones you, evil one wants you to believe and think, he wants to steal your peace by overwhelming you with guilt, by overwhelming you with fear, right? It's exactly what he wants to do. And what God desires to do is to give you the gift of peace. And that peace will enable you and ready you to stand. Are you prepared to stand in spite of what the cost of standing may be? Okay, if you have the peace of God in your heart, here's what you can say, come what may. That's what Martin Luther does, doesn't he? At the beginning of the Reformation of the Catholic Church movement, it's exactly what, the, what, what Martin Luther says. They say, Martin Luther, if you keep pressing this case, it is likely to cost you your life. You know what he said? Three words. Here I stand. My question is, what do you do with someone like that? What do you do with someone like the Apostle Paul who says, you know what, if I die in this conflict, I'm really okay with it because to live is for Christ. And to die with peace in Christ is gain. What do you do with someone like that? How do you defeat an opponent that says, hey, death would be better? Okay, that's exactly what Paul's saying because he is so utterly assured of his relationship with God. The fourth piece of protection that God gives to us is the shield of faith. This was a war shield typically made of wood and then surrounded by steel or iron and then covered with sometimes linen and sometimes with leather, sometimes drenched in water before an encounter, a battle. And Paul, you typically two and a half feet wide, four feet high. Okay, and the Roman soldiers would carry that forward as they would advance into the enemy's territory. It's called the shield of faith. Paul says with that shield, what do you do? You quench all the fiery darts of the devil. Which means that Satan's attacks come in plurality. Okay? He will continue to come against and come against and come against. And as we claim the promises of God by faith, what are we doing? We are lifting up the shield of faith that captures the incendiary or the fiery darts of the opposition. Okay, in Rome, typically in that time in ancient battles, they would have this shield that was saturated in water because the opposition would typically take arrows that had cloth on the tip, they would dip them in pitch, light them on fire, and then just volleys of them would come down on the opposition as they advanced against the city. Okay, that volley of fiery darts would cause incredible fear amongst the opposition. To get hit by one of them would be exceedingly painful and debilitating. Here's what Paul says. When the enemy is firing volleys at you, take up the shield of faith. Okay, now, let me just seek to make this practical. Okay, the flaming arrows are darts that he sends against us to disable us. John 8, 44 says that Satan is the father of lies. So what he ultimately wants to do is cause doubt in my mind as a believer as to the goodness and power of God. He wants to destabilize me so that I shut down and step off the field. That's what I believe he desires to do. His ultimate purpose is to cause doubt about the goodness and power of God. But as we as Christians claim the promises of God, 
and rest in the promises of God and doubt the doubt by proclaiming truth against it. We are raising the shield of faith against the fiery darts that certainly do come into our lives. Okay, and if you, if you are sincere and serious about your Christian experience, seeking to advance the cause of Christ, you know what it is to have these flaming missiles coming into your life at various times. Sometimes in volley, sometimes individual shots, but they come against you as you seek to advance the cause. Understand this. The shield of faith was not something a soldier sat in his house with holding it over him. Okay, it was something that he only needed when he was advancing the cause of his country. The only time you will avail yourself of the shield of faith is when you go out there and say, God, I am going to seek to advance your cause. Understanding that when I get serious about Christian living and advancing the cause of Christ, I will begin to experience opposition. And when I do, what do I do? Do I turn around and run? No, you know what Paul says? Paul says, take up the shield of faith. Can I give you a few suggestions of this? As we believe the promises of God, the shield flies up and we extinguish the doubts. Faith is, in this context, trust in God's provision, protection, and promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. The missiles of our thought life. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, and right, and lovely, and admirable, think on these things. The missile of compromise. Just a little fudging won't hurt. First Thessalonians chapter 4. It is God's will that you abstain from all immorality. The message of plaguing guilt that hangs in your heart and destroys your confidence in God. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us from all sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The missile of habitual sin. The message from the evil one that you are trapped and can't overcome this. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. He is able to do abundantly and more than you would ever ask or think he can set you free claim the promise of god the missile of impossible circumstances whether it is financial struggle or marital struggle or whatever it is philippians 4:19 but my god shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by christ jesus do you see he he will come against you okay can i raise children that will live for the glory of god Okay, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Don't let the evil one steal your confidence and joy. The missile of doubt, Hebrews 10 verse 23. He who promised is faithful. And Psalm 36, 5, and I love this verse. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. That's a fascinating statement, isn't it? Because Satan's the prince and power of the air, but guess what Psalm 36, 5 says? His faithfulness reaches through all of that and will sustain you in all of that for his glory. 1 John 5 and verse 4. Listen to this statement. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our what? Our faith. You see, folks, when the world stands in opposition to righteousness... The victory that overcomes it is confidence in God. The victory that overcomes it is not sheer determination. It is, it is sheer confidence in God that overcomes. So the question that I have to then ask myself is this. Am I, in the midst of the battle, able to defend myself with the shield of faith? Do I take 
the promises and power of God and avail myself of them so that I can stand. But see, that's the task of Christian living. And then he says this, take the helmet of salvation. And I think the helmet of salvation, if I'm going to boil it down a little bit, I'm going to say that it is assurance of ultimate rescue or deliverance. Okay, the helmet of salvation is assurance of ultimate victory, of ultimate salvation, of ultimate rescue. Okay, I ride a motorcycle, okay? When, you, when I go into Pennsylvania and see people riding without a helmet, I shudder. I internally shudder. Now, I know that some of you, the thought of getting on a motorcycle or a bike causes you to shudder. Okay, I understand that. But when, I, when, when you put on a helmet, it, it may be a false confidence, okay? But it works, okay? It, it gives you that sense that with this on, if I go down, what's most important okay, is protected. That's the idea. Okay, you give football equipment to an eight-year-old kid. Okay, he puts on all those pads. He puts on that big helmet that fits loosely. But you know what he turns into? They turn into like a 60-pound kamikaze. All right, they have this, this sheer and utter confidence. Why? Because what is most critical is protected. Okay, so what, what does Paul say to the church? Put on the helmet of salvation, which was typically either a brass piece that covered everything but the eyes, the ears, and the mouth. All, everything was protected. Okay, you at least had the capacity to hear, you could see, and you could speak. Everything else was protected. Either leather or brass. Okay, and when that was put on, it, if you ever watch the movie like Gladiator, when they, when they cinch on that armor, there's this sense that, man, how do you take this person out? You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to take the helmet of salvation, which is the assurance that God is for everyone who is trusted in, in Him by grace through faith. The assurance that He is going to finish in your life what He started. And the verse that comes to my mind, it's a verse I memorized uh, when I was in college. It's a verse that Phil Sotil came across the other day and shared with me. Philippians 1 and verse 6. Being confident, assured of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perform it or bring it to completion until the day of Christ. Now folks, if you're wrestling with doubt, I encourage you, to take the confidence that comes from your salvation and the assurance of it through the blood of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to put that on. on a day. And notice how he says it. He says, take up the helmet of salvation. It's sitting there. It's ready for you. Take it and put it on. If you've never trusted Christ, this is God's provision for you, salvation is not something that you achieve and accomplish. It is, in fact, what He has done for you, and He wants to provide it for you as a gift by grace through faith alone. You see, in the ancient world, the sky was filled in battle with javelins and lit missiles, okay, flaming arrows, axes coming down, swords being swung. That helmet when it was put on, would inspire in the wearer a degree of confidence that I can do this, that I am prepared and ready to go out and engage in the battle. And you can imagine a Roman soldier in that environment with the air filled with opposition. The utter lack of confidence. So I encourage you, church, this morning. Encourage your heart in the gospel. And I ask you this question this morning. 
I ask you this as a friend and as your pastor. Do you have assurance and the resulting confidence of salvation in your heart? Because if you don't, you will be ineffective in living the Christian life. God wants you to be sure that you're sure. He wants you to be absolutely confident in the provision of salvation and redemption and grace that He has given to you so that you can effectively live for Him. Do you know Him? I'm not asking you if you have prayed a prayer in the past. I'm asking you, do you have in your heart the voice of the assurance of God? You are mine. Because if you don't, you will find that you consistently live a defeated Christian life. Because you don't know Him personally. And so I just, I beg of you, if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ. And you're saying, man, everything bothers me. Everything causes me to worry. My guilt oppresses me. There is hope for you. And it is provided by the shed blood of Christ. It is a helmet that is given to you as a gift from God. And when you know Him, it will produce in your life a confidence that is not emerging from or owing to your performance or your religious experiences. It will be a confidence that is owing to the grace of God that is most clearly manifested on the cross of Christ where our salvation was purchased and where our victory was secured. You see, salvation and the gift of faith are very simply this. It is that Christ died for my sin. Christ was buried and on the third day He demonstrated His ultimate authority. That's why Paul could say, if I die, I'm okay. Why? Because I know someone who has already conquered that. He's already dealt with that problem. This assurance and confidence. And I'm going to tell you this. It will never produce in your heart cockiness. It will never make you proud. The salvation that God gives will always produce a humble, assured confidence. I mean, when you read Paul in prison, read him in prison. Watch what he's saying. Listen to his words. You don't sense cockiness. You just sense this assurance that for the opposition is utterly frustrating. Because it is an assurance that comes from God. It is, in fact, the armor of God. The last thing he tells us to take up is the sword of the Spirit, which is God's declarations, God's commands, and God's promises. His unvoidable word. What we do is this. We defeat the lies of the evil one. The incendiaries that he sends against us. The missiles that flame and that hurt. We respond to them with the word of truth. This is exactly what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4. Three times Satan comes and offers an alternative route. Jesus says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. And when you get to verse 11 of chapter 4, what does it say? It says, the devil left him. Okay, why? He is... He is inadequate, he is insufficient to destroy you in the face of of the proclamation of truth. It is the offensive weapon that one writer has said, and this this just is a statement that stopped me last night, and I'll quote to you from 1 John 2 to lead to it. He says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. The sword of the spirit is the sword that draws the blood of the evil one. And when you resist him with the sword of truth, what happens? He will, James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He is no adequate opponent for truth. 
Okay, just understand, you need to memorize and meditate on the Word of God. You need to read it and prepare in it on a daily basis. Because His Word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It will show you who you are. It will show you your need of a Savior. It will lay you wide open. It will point you to hope in Jesus Christ. Because Romans ten seventeen says this, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. Confidence comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So the question we need to ask ourselves as Christians is this, in light of this last statement. Am I spending regular time in the word of God? So these six implements that God gives with this command in verse 11 and verse 13, put on the full armor of God. When you experience a failure of confidence like Ephesians 3.13 is pointing to, this failure of confidence, a waning of confidence, what do you need to do? You need to resist the complacency and apathy that are present in most of us towards spiritual warfare. And instead, you need to appropriate all of God's resources on a daily basis. And when we appropriate all of God's resources daily, we will find that sustained successful, joyful, fruitful Christian living is possible. Folks, I am just convinced that many of us live a half-hearted Christian life. Weak, anemic, doubting, and afraid. And we are very much like the disciples of Christ. And it's why he says to them, do not let your heart be troubled. I have made provision for your success. And folks, look, if I take the provision of God that is empowered by God and find that I begin to experience progress in my Christian life. Who will get the glory? The one that provided the equipment will get the glory. And we will say, God, in your strength and in your power, I am able now to stand and to live for your glory. And having, this is the the, the statement that hits me the most out of this, and having done everything to stand. Now folks, you know what God wants? God wants you to get to the end of every day. Maybe you took a few shots. But you know what he wants? He wants you to take his provision. And and I'm not so concerned that you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to go through these six things every morning. Okay, I don't think that's, I think the picture here is God has made provision so that successful, joyful, powerful Christian living is possible. It is possible for those who take on all of God's provision. He says, if you take it on, you know what you're going to do? You will stand. You will stand. May God help us to put on the armor because we live in a spiritual battle. Whether you recognize it or not, it is there. And God Almighty wants to help you. Let's pray this morning, Father.